you have a Bible in front of you, you might like um, to turn to Matthew's Gospel. And so uh, this morning we are um, going to start, uh, over the next few um, weeks we're looking at a, a fresh, a new series in the morning, different people will be sharing in that, not just myself, and it's going to be entitled Just Jesus, and it really looks at Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and whom we've been singing about and to and worshipping this morning. And uh, that's where we're going. This morning, it's, there's no one like Jesus is the message. And it's really an introduction to a series of messages that you'll, we'll be sharing together, looking at life, how we can follow Jesus, what it means to know Jesus, how to be like Jesus Christ. And uh, he is the very central person and figure of history and our faith and life. So in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 17, we... Um, Read these words. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah. The son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You'll see on the screen there, that's um, a photograph of Christ the Redeemer. It's a huge, a giant statue of Jesus with his outstretched arms overlooking uh, the city of Rio, Rio de Janeiro in um, Brazil. And the symbolism there is of the highest of all high points. And you can see um, him with his arms stretched out of, of over the whole city, a city of millions and millions of people. The idea being there that he is the, the answer to life. He pleads, he loves, he changes. He is the answer to all things. And uh, that's what we want to look at over these next few weeks. At this Jesus, who he is, what's he like? What difference can he make to us? Um, And how can we know him and walk with him? And if we can walk with him, what does that feel like and look like? And if we do do that, what is life like? And it's quite an amazing life. And it's that that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. This morning then, there's no one like Jesus. Jesus has, has been termed the most influential person in human history. Many, many, I mean, not everyone would say this, but many, many influential writers, historians, scholars, philosophers, whether they are Christian or not Christian, would say that the person of Jesus Christ is a pivotal person of the entire human history. H.G. Wells wrote this. He said, I am a historian. I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth, Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure of all history. A historian by the name of Kenneth Scott Latourette, really well known, an amazing historian, he said this, as the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that 
measured by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on the planet. Napoleon Bonaparte, you wouldn't think, quoting Jesus. You would think, you know, um, an amazing general and uh, became an emperor of a large part of the world. He said this, I know men and tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible um, term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I, this is Bonaparte, have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus founded his empire upon love. And this and, and in this hour, millions of men would die for him. He was bemoaning the fact that he was now destitute and everyone had fled from him. Great and amazing uh, general that Bonaparte was. The cross um, is a pervasive and iconic symbol of life today. Many, many people will wear a silver cross or a golden cross. They might not even realize what they're doing. But uh, as it's become a fashion item, but also an iconic uh, symbol of representing love and forgiveness. The cross is renowned the worldwide, history-wide, and uh, as a, a symbol of love and forgiveness. Talk about brand awareness um, you know, whether it's a, a, an item to be sold and the adverts that we have on television, always speaking about the brand and buying into the brand. Uh, with Richard Branson, it's, it's, it's Virgin Media, Virgin Records, Virgin Trains, Virgin Air, Virgin Bank. It's the brand, and it's been sold on to another company now, and it might not be called uh, owned by Virgin, but they still take the Virgin brand. But talk about it, if it, we, if it was a brand, and Jesus is more than a brand, but is renowned and known in history and throughout the world. So a couple of things that I want to look at uh, this morning. So first of all, fact or fiction? There are three things that we're going to look at. Fact or fantasy. Uh, then we're going to take a moment or two to look about what did Jesus claim about himself? What did he actually say? And then finally, we're going to look at the resurrection, an event and an experience. So first of all, just briefly, uh, and I don't have very long just to unpack a few things. So I'm going to try and keep it as simple, straightforward in about 20 minutes as you possibly can if you're going to speak about the life of Jesus Christ. It's nearly nigh on impossible, but we're going to give it a go. And so hang on to uh, fasten your seatbelt because this is where we go. Fact or fiction. You know, you can speak to people, friends, and they go, oh, the Bible? You don't believe that, do you? It's fairy stories. The amount of people that will say today, Jesus, who? Many would know, but there's a 20 to 30% of the population, uh, a poll was taken, and about something like 50 to 60, I say, so like 60% of the population of people polled in a recent survey by Evangelical Alliance, non-Christians, took a survey of several thousand people. About sort of 60% of people said, do you know, yeah, this Jesus, I think he existed. And something like 30% of people, not Christians, said, no, fantasy, fairy story. So something like 30% of people roughly uh, walking around out there that was actually saying, perhaps you come across a friend or a colleague or a neighbor. Sometimes at work, you might be a bit worried about saying, you know, I know Jesus. And somebody will say to you, 
Do you really believe that stuff? Is it really true? So is it fact or is it all fiction? In actual fact, Jesus, you, you may say, well, I know this, duh. But in actual fact, Jesus really did live and walk this earth. It's not something made up. It's not fiction. There, it, it is a fact. Most of our information actually comes, and a large part rather, of our information about the fact of Jesus Christ, the real person of Jesus, comes from the New Testament, second part of the Bible, and the Gospels and the letters written by those early disciples. And so a, a, a huge proportion of what we understand of the life of Jesus Christ actually comes from what we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, then the letters that were written to the churches at the time that have been collected to, together. So let me just say a few things about that, this New Testament and to try and keep it as, as simple as, as possible. The, so that, that's our main source of information. Did you know that there's something like... 5,600 manuscripts that are written in Greek that are either partial or full New Testament. 5,600 Greek manuscripts. They'll be partial or full um, parts of the New Testament. 5,600. There's another 15 to 20,000 partial and full manuscripts of the New Testament written in Latin. So we have something like 25,000, some say 27,000 partial or full manuscripts that go back to the New Testament in circulation today. Now, before you say, whoopee-doo-dah, what's the point of me knowing that? Let me just say something. Roughly speaking, there are 600 copies of Homer's Iliad. There's absolutely, in historical writings, a guy called Homer wrote the uh, Iliad, an ancient uh, text, and there's something like 600 copies of that. And no one denies uh, the existence and the reality of uh, this philosopher, historian, and poet called Homer, right? Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't know. How many people have read the Iliad? Ian Thayer's. I've read a bit of it, a little bit, but... And, and Perry as well. I mean, it's a bit, you know, you could say whoopee-doo. But it's, it's, it's history. Helen of Troy, the Trojan War. And, you know, there's a bit of myth in that. But it, it, there's, there's amazing history. 600 copies. Uh, the writings of Plato. Plato is a philosopher that's had a huge effect on the modern world. A lot of his philosophical thinking. Plato, an ancient philosopher and writer. There's seven copies no one denies the existence of Plato. And you could go on, uh, there, uh, but I won't because it, I'll, we'll be lost and I'll be lost in it. But there's 27, 26,000 copies and parchments relating to the New Testament as an ancient writing. It's pretty incredible when you compare, and you'll be able to, so you can compare and contrast all these writings and look at them together. There's loads of them to be able to look together. So that's the first thing. So the source of information, there is absolutely loads, absolutely loads. Second thing I want to say is this. The time that we have from those early writings and then the earliest copies that survive, because you can imagine, written on parchment, they sort of deteriorate. They do deteriorate a little bit. So to have 
full copies and partial copies. When I took my wife Helen to the British Museum some years ago, we went to London. And uh, on this occasion, I did not wine and dine. I said, we're going to the British Museum, Helen. And she said, all right then. You can tell that she wasn't very enamored. So we went round the British Museum and we saw this parchment. And I said, look at that. Look at that, I said. And there was this little bit of a fragment that goes back. And it, she said, it's a bit of the New Testament written in Greek. And I said, like, that's amazing. And it went back to like 300 AD. And I said, she said, is that it? Is that all it's about, she said. I'll never forget. But you can go to the British Museum and you can find loads and loads of these. It's incredible that they've survived. Okay, well, basically, let me tell you something. It's not based on fiction, but a fact. The time that the, the earliest writings that we have to the, the time that they were written after the event to now the earliest surviving copies. This is really interesting. So how about this? The writings of Aristotle, no one denies Aristotle. Aristotelian philosophy has a huge, profound effect. You might not realize it on our thinking today. Well, Aristotle, the, the earliest surviving copies that we have of his ancient writings, written 1,400 years after. Plato, the earliest surviving copies of Plato's writings, and again, another philosopher who's had a profound effect on Western thinking, 1,200 years after he wrote them down. They're the early surviving copies. Homer, good old Iliad, as me, Ian, and Perry have read. Uh, you probably read all of it. I've read bits of it. Homer's Iliad, 500 years. Early surviving copy. Historians rave about it. How about this? The New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the writings of the apostles, etc. Between 30 to 250 years. They're the earliest copies that we have surviving after Jesus Christ. Now, you might think that's a long time, but the actual New Testament copies that we have um, surviving today really are very close to the actual time of Jesus Christ. In actual fact, most Bible scholars reckon that the, the New Testament was written between 50 to 100 years, so 20 to 70 years after Jesus the earliest, very earliest writings, and then the copies made of them that are now surviving uh, are 30 to 250 years later. We've got them. They were later. We've, they've survived. And that's the time scale between. So for things to go wrong, for things to be made up, there's not a long time in the way when we look at textual criticism and ancient writings. What I'm saying is this, and what a lot of textual critics say is this, is that you can be very confident that what we believe and is talked about is related in history. It ain't fairy stories. So you can be quite confident when you speak to a friend, but not a lot of people maybe know this. And the third thing I would want to say is about fact or fiction is this. Oral tradition was strong in the ancient world and in the East. In other words, you would share it, rememorize it, and then you would share it and pass it on. And it's not like Chinese whispers today, because I've got the attention span of a, a gnat. I've got about a 60-second attention span because of the, the way we're wired up today with, with uh, internet, etc., etc., and everything like that. But in the ancient world, you, you learned something by rote. You, you would remember everything. You would you remember whole whole Bible, and you could word for word and be able to recite it's the way the ancient world was. And they passed that on. And so they practiced this oral tradition. Oral tradition. And then it was written down. So 
within 20 to 70 years after Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and the, the letters were written. And now, 200 years later, the copies were made of those early letters and those early writings. And those early letters and early writings came from oral tradition. People that were eyewitnesses that said, I saw him and this is what he said, this is what he did. For us to understand oral tradition today, we wouldn't get it because we say, be all made up, Chinese whispers. How do you know that? But in the ancient world, now if you go to parts of the ancient, no, we can't go to the ancient world, but if you go to the East today, in Eastern culture, if you immerse yourself, you're a missionary and you get amongst Eastern culture, whether that be in parts of Africa and the Middle East, you find that oral tradition is still very strong and things are passed down almost word for word, wrote, parrot fashion, and they're close to what's been said going back millennia. It's a powerful thing. So when you couple together the amount of text that we have, the time span that they were written, and the power of oral tradition, there's a really strong case by most Bible scholars, evangelical scholars, actually now would say there's a strong case for fact that Jesus did live as the gospel said he did. He did die as the gospel said he did. And well, it's up to you if you're going to believe in faith that he rose again. So there's a sense of fact there. Second thing I'd want to look at then is and outside of and outside of the New Testament, there's a whole load of people who aren't Christians who wrote in the ancient world. They might not have believed of Jesus being the Son of God, but they attest to Jesus being around and alive. So a man called Josephus, a guy called Tacitus, another guy called Pliny. Josephus was a Jew, a Jewish historian who speaks of Jesus being a wise man and a doer of good. Might not have said he was God but in, and was put to death in the days of Pontius Pilate. He wrote around about the time after Jesus. Not a Christian. And his writings survived. A historian called Tacitus, who's a Roman historian, speaks of Christ, who was put to death under Pontius Pilate. And that is why now Nero is persecuting the... Uh, he wrote a history of, of, of Rome. And he said Nero's persecuting Christians who, were, who followed this Christ as a, as a god. And a guy called Tacitus writes about that. And a guy called Pliny, who's a governor, writing a letter to the emperor Trajan. He s- says that... Speaking about these Christians who will not swear allegiance to the emperor, they, they sing to Christ a, a hymn as, as a God. Really interesting, outside of the New Testament. So second thing then, so uh, there's a sense of fact rather than fiction. And we can be secure and confident that this Jesus is true and real. And, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's faith, of course, but there is a fact that Jesus is a true figure of history. Second thing that we see, who is this Jesus? What did Jesus say about himself? Who is this Jesus? What did he say about himself? Second thing that I'd like to, to, to introduce this morning. Unlike any other, Buddha claimed enlightenment. The Buddha, he claimed an enlightened path to nirvana and freedom and enlightenment from this world and an enlightenment from freedom from this world and enlightenment in this world. Muhammad claimed to be a great prophet an incredible prophet, Confucius, a man of incredible wisdom and uh, uh, philosophy and a way of living and uh, life. But what about Jesus in there? People will say, okay, maybe he did live. Prophet, good man, perhaps. But what about this Jesus? We've looked at the fact side of him being existence, but what did he say about himself? And he asked others in this text that we've just read, what do people say about me? What do you say about me? Who do you say I am? He said to the disciples. And they turned around and said to him, You, 
Some say, you know, you're like Elijah. You could be like Jeremiah. You're a prophet. Lots of people are not sure. You're an amazing person. And then the disciples say, but you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Jesus said, that's been revealed by the Holy Spirit to you. A man called Karl Barth, a evangelical theologian of immense proportion who wrote a a Christian uh, theology that's been foundational in in understanding um, the Bible and the New Testament. He said this, Jesus does not give recipes that show the way to God as other teachers of religion do. He is himself the way. Jesus didn't give a recipe of how to find enlightenment, how to find the light. He was a prophet of the light. He is the way. So he didn't say, if you're hungry, I'll give you bread. He said, I am the bread. Spiritual hunger. He didn't say, if you're hungry, I'll give you bread. He said, I'm the bread of life. He didn't say, I'll show you the light, as other prophets do and good religious teachers. I can show you a way. I can show you the light. He said, I am the light. This is radical. This is so different from any other faith on the, sa- on the face of the earth and any other enlightened religious leader. He didn't say, I'll show you a door to God. He said, you guessed it, I am the door to the Father. He didn't say, <coughs> I have come to point the way to life and God He said, I am the way. Other leaders said, I know a way. I can show you a way. I can prophesy a way. But Jesus said, I am the way. He didn't come to teach just about the truth. Like, I'm a prophet. I'm a great teacher. People said, you're a great rabbi. He didn't then say, well, I'll teach you the truth. And he did teach truth. But how about this? He said, I am the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No other prophet claimed that. That's why the people of the day picked up stones to destroy him because he was claiming to be the truth. Only God is the truth, the creator of the universe. He didn't say, I've come to just show you life. Although he did show life, he said, I am life. I am the life. So Jesus' message was himself. He showed himself. He showed God and he showed, his message was based around himself. He wasn't egotistical, full of himself, but full of the Father, full of grace and full of the Holy Spirit and full of truth, the Bible says and tells us. But his message was himself. And so the message of Jesus is all about relationship, not religion. It's about someone, not something. And so we've been talking about this. If we worship worship, we exchange someone for something, worship. But the someone is Jesus. We worship Jesus. If we worship the Bible, and some people say they can be so, we should be taken up with the Bible. But if we go for something rather than someone, it's Jesus, the someone. You notice all our songs were pointing towards Jesus all the time. It's not your denomination. It's not even if someone claims, I'm a great, well, I better not put on an accent, I'm a great prophet. Or doesn't matter, whoopee doo. It's Jesus who is the great high priest. It's Jesus who is the great prophet. And so it's the someone, that someone in life is 
Jesus Christ. This is why it's so incredibly important to know this Jesus. Because he said, I am the way. I'm the truth. I am the life. I am the bread of life. I am light. I am the light. I am the way to God. I am God. It's so important to know this person, Jesus. So he's not just an amazing man, but our amazing God. Jesus said things like this. I meaning him, not me, I and the Father are one. And that they were wanting to pick up stones to kill him and throw him because he was claiming to be God. When Thomas, at the resurrection, all the disciples had seen Jesus and they told Thomas, he said, no, 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 unless I see him. And when Jesus showed himself to Thomas, what did Thomas say? He said, my Lord and my God. Jesus, the Gospels do not say that Jesus then said, oh, no, 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 no. Don't do that, Thomas. He accepted Thomas' adoration. It's incredible. No other. Now, it's amazing because if you look in Acts, when the disciples, Paul um, and and the other disciples were in a, a Greek town and they performed some miracles, the people came running out and bowed to them as the gods had come down. And Paul and the disciples said, no, 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 we're not gods. This is done in the name of Jesus. Isn't that how amazing is the New Testament to show you the truth? And here we have Jesus accepting adoration as God, more than a man. Jesus said this. He said one day to a group of religious people, before Abraham was... I am. And they picked up stones to destroy him. It's in the Gospels. Uh, I am is where God said to Moses, said, I am that I am has sent you. And Jesus was claiming to be before, before Abraham. Abraham was 2,000 years at the time when they were speaking. So Jesus was before Abraham. I am. He's with God, the Son of God. Jesus is at the center of it all. History, as you know, you've heard it said, history is his story. He's pivotal. He's at the pinnacle. He's at the center of everything. I would say, I cannot describe, wow, wow, wow. There's no one like Jesus Christ. So why exchange him for anything else? Why follow anything else? Charismatic Christians follow many things. We're called to follow Jesus Christ. Final thing then. So the most amazing thing. So uh, brief. So we've looked at fact of fiction and, and looked at the fact of the life of Jesus Christ. It lived, died, and, and rose and, uh, uh, in the days of Pontius Pilate. We've looked at that uh, very brief aspect. We've looked at this idea of the claims of Jesus. He's very aware that he is... Uh, equal with God. He's the son of God and to be the savior of the world. And just really, just really just touched on that. Finally, the the third thing that we see regarding Jesus is this aspect of the resurrection, the most amazing miracle of all and uh, uh, pointing to the proof of who uh, Jesus is. Do you know, there's a hunger in the human heart. There is a hunger in the human heart and that hunger is for relationship. It doesn't matter what color you and I are, doesn't matter what age you and I are, doesn't matter what country you and I come from, doesn't matter what language you and I speak, there's a great big leveler in life. Psychologists have now looked at this across life and society, and they say it's this thing. In the human heart, there's one thing, and it's, it's, it's 
love, relationship. We want to be loved and to love. Oh, there's many other aspects to life and there's many things that we go after. That's, that's true and absolutely true. But in the very center, the deep hunger of the human soul is this aspect of love. And it speaks of relationship. So when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, he's basically saying, I fulfill that deep hunger of relationship with God. It's incredible. He wasn't just saying it for effect, and they were hungry people. If they didn't have bread, you died in those days. You didn't have a welfare state, so food was a huge topic. In Eastern culture, it still is, because you sit and, and eat together. So there was that symbolism. But he was also speaking about the real depth of the human heart. And so, the resurrection fills that desire and need and a way of having relationship with Father God through Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. A man called Blaise Pascal, a writer and philosopher, said this, there is a God-shaped vacuum in every heart. In other words, it all feels a bit soulless. Listen, you only have to have um, a financial crash, which we had round about 2008, and everybody's panicking and saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know, money seems... It's the, it's the be-all and end-all, but then we start to think there must be more to life than this because it can go just like that. You know, there's a deep sense of desire for relationship and God and a relationship with God, to be loved by God and to love God. This is why Jesus said, love the, the greatest command is to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your mind and all your strength and then your neighbor as yourself. Love. He said this before psychologists started talking about it. Love is the central desire of the heart, and it's the hunger of the heart, and it fills the heart. Love for God, love by God, and then we're able to truly love one another. That's what Jesus was saying there. Now, the empty tomb points the way to a full heart. The resurrection, the empty tomb, you see it on the screen there? I mean, that isn't maybe the tomb, but it's a rendition of the tomb where Jesus would be buried. You can go to the tomb, or try and find the tomb. Some people say they found the tomb, others are not so sure. But in this way, you can't find Jesus' body. There is no sarcophagus, there is no mummified body, there are no bones that are brought out in which we, we, we bow down to and go on a pilgrimage to. There are none, because he's not there, he's alive, he's risen, he's raised just like he said he would. It's the greatest miracle of the universe, and it's the greatest hope that we have. So the empty tomb points the way to a full heart. When Jesus said that love God, have a relationship with God, the fact that the tomb is empty now means that our hearts can be full. We've got an amazing message to tell the world. To tell the world. Tell the world that Jesus lives as the, as the song goes. And so we can have hope. We feel hope. I feel hope. There are days when I don't feel very hopeful, of course. And you might be feeling that right now. But the resurrection, the fact of what Jesus said he would, and he actually spoke about the fact that he would die and be ro- rise again, even before it happened. No other leaders have ever said that. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though he dies. John eleven twenty five. Jesus was aware of his purpose. Jesus talked about his death and resurrection before it happened. Jesus is the way to the Father. So the resurrection, being ra- dying in our place, being raised from the dead, points away to a full heart of, why full heart? I mean love relationship with Father God. That's what I mean. The resurrection has a future and a now 
experience. It's not just an event that happened, but it can be something that we can experience today. The future, when we die, we will live. I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me um, will live even though he dies. There's a future aspect that you and I, death is not the end. I'll let you into a little secret. So, they're not here, so that's okay. I can say something. But uh, I was speaking to, uh, and they don't, this, this person doesn't come here, so that's okay as well. But I was speaking to a, one, a, a funeral director, and I, I was uh, conducting, a, uh, at the end of a funeral, and this funeral director, the, the main, it was a lady, the main lady you know, with the top hat and, and everything else, lovely person, did a great job, was very professional, very loving and kind, said to me, I like, if you can like doing funerals, so I like doing funerals at your church. I said, really? She says, yeah, we were just walking away at, at the end. And, and, uh, uh, she said, yeah. She said, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but there's almost something happy about them, if they can be happy events. And I says, you're absolutely right. I says, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. It's because we believe that Jesus Christ is alive and he's raised from the dead and we can be raised from the dead too, those that believe in him. And that's why we are sad, but we believe and we have hope and we have this sort of sense that, you know, there's, there, is, there is this... She went, oh, that's interesting. So there is this hope that we have. There's this future hope. But how about this? So when we die, so shall we live. But there's a now aspect. There's a future, but there's a now aspect. With this, we'll be closing. While we live... We can be alive. When we die, we so shall we live. Future. But now, listen, say to yourself, I don't do it very often, say this, but just say now. What do you say with me? Now. 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 Well done, Ben. Now. Well, all right, that's enough now, lad. Uh, <laughs> I've started something now. While we live, we can be alive. Now, this is the good news. The resurrection isn't just a future An event that happened with Jesus, something we look forward to, which is pretty amazing. And and it's, it's incredible to have that hope in our lives. But now we have this now experience so that we can be alive. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life, life to the full or life in abundance. And so there is this future aspect. Romans 10, verse 9 to 10, we read this. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With, your, with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with your mouth you confess resulting in salvation. So Romans 10.10, 10, future, resurrection life. But how about this? Ephesians chapter 1 verses 18 to 21. We, Paul writes, he basically in our paraphrase, he says the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you, the church. If you read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, he's basically saying, this is a bit of a paraphrase, but the same resurrection power that was in Jesus that God used to raise him from the dead is now in you that believe. In other words, the same resurrection power, we can live alive. We can be alive. We can actually live a life, a different type of life, a new life, a raised life. We can live that today. Let's close as we sing together. We're going to sing together as we close. If Christ could die for me, can I live for him? That's what I ask you this morning. Let's make Jesus the very center of our lives. He is fact, not fiction. He claimed to be the son of God, the way, the truth, and the life. And in the resurrection, we have a future hope, but now an experience 
of his raised life. And it's something in the power of the Holy Spirit, something we may know in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to be with the Father, but don't worry, I won't leave you alone. Uh, In John's Gospel, he said, I send you the person of the Holy Spirit to be with you and in you, and he's like me, so that you will know me, live like me, be like me, and know my power, my love, my forgiveness in you. We may know the power of the resurrection. If he could die for me, will you live for him? I want to say yes. I falter. I make mistakes. I would say, just as with Paul, a wretched man that I am. But thanks be to God, in Christ Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ, I'm raised into heavenly places. I know the power of God, and I can know the power of God. Whatever you might face right now, whether it be sickness, a a way that seems dark ahead of you, relationships in life that seem to falter, the world seems to just be swallowing you up right now. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He can show a way for you. He can intervene in our hearts and lives. All we've got to do is trust him. I want to be part of a church that lives for Jesus. I want to be part of a church of this generation that wants to tell the world. I want to be part of a church that just opens up our lives and says, Lord, come and have your way in me. Be my master. Let's stand together, shall we?